0: Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and I'm joined today by a good friend of the show, the political economist Radhika Desai. And we are talking about her book, Capitalism, Coronavirus, and War. This is a multi-part series. There are so many interesting ideas that Radhika explores in this book. And today we're going to be talking about chapter four, which is on neoliberalism and its financializations. I want to remind everyone that you can Follow along in the series and read Radhika's book for free. You can download it, and I'll put the link in the description below. And we're going to be going, we're actually going to do this in two parts. So, in the first part, we're going to be going through the history of the rise of neoliberalism, going to the modern era, the contemporary era. And in particular, I do want to ask about the issue of stagflation in the 1970s. What caused it? What are the lessons we can learn from it? And what are the similarities to today? Now, for people who don't know, stagflation refers to simultaneous economic stagnation and inflation. And today, there are economists who argue that we may see a similar period of stagflation like the stagflation of the 1970s. But Radhika, I want to begin before we talk about the parallels to today. I want to talk about the rise of neoliberalism in the 1970s and in particular in the 1980s. You know, this is most well-known in the figure of Margaret Thatcher, who became Prime Minister of Britain in 1979, and then Ronald Reagan became President of the United States in 1981. And you, in your book, point out that neoliberalism, the, this, the idea, which essentially is free market fundamentalism, this is not something that was born in the 1970s. You point out that existed, in fact, for many decades, um, in particular, represented really by the Austrian school of economics of people like um, Hayek and von Mises, and essentially, I mean, this, these free market fundamentalist ideas were fringe; they were completely fringe until the 1970s. And you point out that it was the crisis of stagflation in the 1970s that gave rise to this, this, uh, to to essentially the Austrian school of economics and eventually the monetarists and Milton Friedman becoming mainstream, this previously fringe idea, because essentially capitalism was in the m- monopoly stage, and there were two solutions. Further socialization of capital tur- uh, turn toward more social- socialist policies, or simply the free market fundamentalist era of neoliberalism, removing all restrictions on capital. And that, of course, led to an ensuing financialization we're going to talk about today. So That's how you begin the chapter. Can you lay that out in further detail, why you think neoliberalism did eventually reign supreme? What caused the stagflation of the 1970s? And what were the two paths that could have been taken? And why was the neoliberal path taken and not the more socialistic path?
1: Okay, so that's a lot of questions. And if I forget any one of them, please remind me. But uh, let's begin with uh, neoliberalism and its origins. So, um. As I understand it, and as I have discovered in writing, not only this book, but many other things that I've written, in fact, going back to my MA thesis, which uh, was precisely about these neoliberals and the think tanks that they had created back in the mid 1980s. But leave that aside, I've been on this sort of, I've been sniffing at this trail for a very long time. So to, to, to summarize what I've discovered over the decades, um uh, basically you have in the late 19 um, uh, in the late 19th century circa 1870 you have the emergence of something called neoclassical economics and this is what's generally taught as you know i mean if you go to to university today uh, and you take economics what you'll be taught in your undergraduate economics degree the mainstream economics which is still predominantly taught is some version of neoclassical economics however Uh, Even this neoclassical economics, when it emerged, it emerged in the work of three quite different uh, people. So apparently what happened is that three different people, Stanley Jevons in England, Leon Balras in Switzerland, and... Karl Menger in Austria, they all independently came to rather similar conclusions. Now, I should add that we have talked about the emergence of neoclassical economics in these series before, but in the past, when we talked about it, we were talking about its emergence as a challenge to Marxism. So, you know, and, and to classical political economy. And what I said is that what happened by the late 19th century is that with the increasing presence of an increasingly organized working class, essentially, even classical political economy of people like Ricardo could not be allowed to continue because they said dangerous things like all value comes from labor. So if all value comes from labor, then why is why are capitalists and landlords appropriating so much value becomes a natural question. So it had, you know, some new type of understanding of the capitalist economy had to emerge and it did emerge. And that was neoclassical economics. Now, in general, we tend to put them all in the same box. But I should say that it, it you know, Stanley rebels didn't really make much of a mark um, uh, uh, he was kind of very scattered sort of thing. He was not particularly theoretical, but Leon Walras and Karl Menger certainly left very big legacies. So Walrasian version of class, uh, neoclassical economics is typically the is the one that tends to assume that there is ultimately in the long run equilibrium in the economy so that all the forces of supply and demand balance each other out and there will be equilibrium and everything will be fine. The Austrians were in many ways much cleverer and I'll tell you why they were clever. Because if you was insist that the capitalist economy naturally leads to equilibrium, and then you see that in reality it does not. There are regular crises. There are regular mismatches between supply and demand, for example, and other forms of uh, 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 other problems in, 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 in them. And equilibrium is not obtained. It is, or if it is obtained, it does not last for very long, etc. Then. Then a critique emerges very quickly. But if you say instead that, no, there is no guarantee of equilibrium, anything can happen, then, in fact, the endorsement that you give to the capitalist economy is that much more secure. And that's the Austrians for you. So they do not... Leave hostages to fortune, like Kate claims about equilibrium. They simply say that the free market economy, which allows market forces their full play, which essentially means allowing those who have property to do you know what they want with their property and everything else can go to hell, their claim is that that sort of economy, free market economy, is the best will give you the best outcomes you can expect, even if you don't think they're very good, the point is you'll never get anything better that's their argument so it's the so so these the, these forms of economics are born in the late 1870s but remember that although they very quickly get adopted and 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 start being taught In the early decades, they are still facing, you know, there are still enough people who are around who were schooled in classical political economy. There was the German historical school, which retained elements of classical political economy and so on. Um, And so there was there was a certain sort of resistance there. And then by the time you get uh, into a decade or two later, you also see the rise of institutional economics. And then of course, eventually in the 20th century, you see one of the biggest critiques of neoclassical economics emerging in the form of Keynesian economics. So John Maynard Keynes, who is originally schooled in the Marshallian version, that is to say sort of the English school of this neoclassical economics, and he accepts it, but increasingly he begins to realize Particularly because Keynes' thinking is very deeply connected with making policy. He always wanted to make policy-relevant interventions. So, based on his, the difficulty he had of understanding what was really going on in terms of neoclassical economics, he essentially produces a massive critique. And I like to say that a couple of things about Keynes number uh, and Keynes and Marx. Number one, if Marx was the greatest critic of capitalism in the uh, 19th century, I would say Keynes was the greatest critic of capitalism in the 20th. Secondly, that there's actually a lot in common. You know, the, unfortunately, we have a situation in which people who are Marxists want to show how radical they are by disdaining Keynes, and people who are Keynesians want to show, you know, how elite they are by disdaining Marx. But in reality, there's a lot in common with these. But I don't want to say too much about it. I just want to say that and leave it there. So Keynes' critique is a very radical one. And of course, as we know, through most of the middle of the 20th century, his kind of economics dominated. So it's only when the the Keynesian welfare state economies of the 50s, 60s and 70s fell into the crisis by the 1970s. And people began to and 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 and. of course, there were Keynesian explanations for the crisis, but because Keynesianism was associated with the old regime, they tended to get dismissed. And that is when the neoclassicals got their chance. Now, this is also very interesting because what that tells you is that it took almost 100 years of the continued existence of free market economics, particularly in the form of Austrian neoclassical economics, for free market economics to finally have that day. And I should say one other thing. Um, you know, free market economics was always, uh, was throughout the post Second World War period, very embattled. And in one of the previous um, episodes, I'm sure we've talked about this fact that at the end of the Second World War, everyone thought that the world was going to, or most informed people thought that the world was going to take a radical lurch to the left. And then we've discussed how, although the world did not become socialist, there was some truth to this expectation because uh, you know, communist countries were communist. In third world countries, they were distinctly left with leftist developmentalist programs. And the first world countries, the homelands of capitalism, had Keynesian welfare state uh, 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 re- regimes in which basically uh, capitalism was heavily modified in a variety of ways through full employment policies, welfare states, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So substantial state ownership. So anyway, the point is that this expectation of uh, uh, the hopes of many people and the fears of people like Hayek uh, that the end of the Second World War led Hayek to launch uh, what we know as the More Pellerin Society, essentially a a society of people, you know, free market economists like himself, which Uh, was funded by some small-time industrialists and so on. And these guys, they ended up keeping the face, sort of keeping the flame alive until the crisis of the Keynesian system. And when the crisis occurred, then these little think tanks that had been obscure little places, you know, hammering away and producing, you know, what most people would have considered absurd ideas, suddenly began to get a hearing in the 1970s. And Mrs. Thatcher in particular was converted to the thing King of Friedrich Hayek. Apparently, she used to take his Constitution of Liberty and slam it down in front of her civil servants and said, everybody's going to have to read this book, etc., etc. In the end, of course, actually, even Mrs. Thatcher's reign was not as free market as the free marketeers hoped, but they got a hearing. Uh, they got a hearing, and they, the, the post Second World War period was. Um, Sorry, the the, the 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 crisis in the context of the crisis of the Keynesian welfare state regimes, you got essentially a uh, a situation in which the ruling elites faced a choice. The choice was: shall we, uh, you know, in uh, in the uh, shall we continue? Shall we deepen the socialistic Keynesian welfare state measures that we have taken so far and that have done us so, so done so well by us, giving us you know, two to three decades of the most uh, uh, sustained growth that the world has ever experienced. Shall we just deepen these reforms or shall we roll back these reforms on the on the basis that the problem is, in fact, these socialistic measures? So this was a very fateful crossroads at which the West stood. And. Um, and essentially, the people who argued the second for the second option, which is you should roll back these socialistic reforms because they are the problem, they are shackling capitalism and the free market, you know, animal spirits of entrepreneurs, you should let them lose and allow whatever uh, allow the, uh, the, the the dynamism of capitalism to be restored. So, so. This choice was made, of course, not without a fight. If Most people who actually remember the 1970s will remember them as a decade during which there was a great deal of social strife. There was a lot of uh, uh, industrial strife, particularly strikes and and, and lockouts and so on. Uh, uh, First world economies were, of course, in the grip of stagflation, as you've already mentioned. uh, there were uh, 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 disruptions of various sorts. There was also terrorism. Uh, of course, there was the w- protests against the Vietnam War, et cetera, et cetera. So, all of this stuff, in fact, there was so much popular discontent expressing itself freely in the streets that you actually had a report commissioned by the governments, the essentially the capitalist elites of the, of the three major centers of capitalist accumulation Japan, Western Europe and the United States actually writing a report saying that the first world is suffering from too much democracy because you you know essentially implying that a certain amount of authoritarianism was in order in order to quell these demonstrations the 1970s were a decade of contestation but out of that contestation it is the right that emerged uh, victorious and i should also add that i would say that it emerged victorious obviously for complex reasons but one very important reason is that as we've already discussed the left was already on on the back foot because it had already compromised too much with neoclassical with economics free market economics and economics that assumed that somehow capitalism was eternally, uh, dynamic and, 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 and um, productive and so on and so forth. This, as I've said before, is a Schumpeterian conception, not a Marxist conception of capitalism. But anyway, so the, these guys, they won the, uh, the battle. And so beginning in the 1980s, you saw the installation of the neoliberal policy paradigm, obviously, Uh, In the economy that had already become so state, you know, uh, uh, so controlled by the state, which had been run on fundamentally different principles. The installation of neoliberalism did not happen overnight. There was also there was a process there were also there was also much resistance so beyond a the point there are certain types of neoliberal reforms that could never be undertaken so let me give you one obvious example last week in britain they celebrated the 75th anniversary of the national health system the national health system is a publicly provided is a publicly owned publicly provided system of op- it used to, it was set up as a publicly owned, publicly provided system of healthcare, which would be free at the point of use. So anyone who was ill could simply go to an NHS clinic, hospital, etc., and expect to be treated at no cost to themselves. So obviously, Mrs. Thatcher would have loved to privatize this entire system, to to essentially dismantle its socialistic, statist character, but she could not because it was something that was, it had, has been much loved and continues to be much loved by the British public. But what the neoliberals were able to do was to hollow it out from within so they introduced contracting out of various services they introduced uh of course they 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 they, they, they underfunded it so they ran down so right now for example at And the 75th year of the National Health Service is plagued by nurses' strikes, doctor's strikes, you name it. Practically everybody who works for the National Health Service seems to have a problem because their wages, despite the heroic efforts that they have made during the pandemic, their wages have stagnated for decades. So anyway, so I'm just giving you examples of the sorts of ways in which neoliberalism was implemented. But. Broadly speaking, the direction of policy in our economies, in the first world economy since that time has been in the neoliberal direction. So a couple of other points and I will end uh, end here. So, you you know, uh, uh, the idea, like I said, was that neoliberalism was going to revive capitalism. It was going to free the energies of capitalist entrepreneurs from the shackles imposed by state regulation and social obligation and taxation and what have you. And all these would be lifted and uh, capitalism would return to being dynamic and etc. But you see, this did not happen. And I also argue that it could not happen for a very simple reason. You know, even when neoliberalism was born in the late 19th century, capitalism was already becoming monopoly capitalism. It had seized it had essentially completed its competitive phase. And it was appearing, you know, the, the result of a, a, a competition is ultimately monopoly because what happens in competition is uh, the most successful um, players outcompete the others and then they are the only ones left. And then you have, uh, in every sector of production, uh, one or two large firms dominating the entire sector. So we, already, we had already entered that phase. Now, the whole... Premises of neoliberalism uh, uh, in all its forms, I would say, but certainly in its Austrian form, relies on the notion that competition is still operating in the way that it used to, you know, when uh, in the competitive phase, when all firms were price takers and not price makers. Now, Yes, if, in, if you had a competitive capitalism, then there would have been more of a restoration of dynamism, perhaps. But the fact of the matter is that we already had monopoly capitalism. To give more freedoms to monopoly capital in this fashion would have only led to uh, essentially to, 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 to uh, encouraging them not to display the virtues, of vigorous competition, but the vices of senility. So essentially giving monopoly capital the freedoms that we have given them over the past four decades, freedom from taxation, freedom from regulation, freedom from all sorts of uh, things like that, from state ownership, blah, blah, and so on, all of this has simply encouraged them to not, not to invest and to return to a productive you know. To productive dynamism, but rather to actually increasingly financialize, because uh, uh, they, you know, they have no desire to invest. And there is a further one final reason, which is that neoliberalism is very anti-labor. It restricts the li- right of labor. It wants to roll back strong unions, etc. Now, when you are anti-labor, what you do essentially is you create the conditions in which wages will stagnate. And one of the key insights of John Maynard Keynes, as also of Marx, is that if you restrict the wages of workers, ultimately you are restricting the market. The market is not going to be as big as it would be if wages workers were able to earn a healthier wage. Of course, ultimately it will never be big enough, but it will not, you know, neoliberalism restricts the market even more. So with very bad market conditions and monopoly prevailing in capitalist uh, among in in all sector pretty well all sectors of capitalism capitalism could not regain its mojo no matter how much freedom in uh, they you gave them indeed the more freedom you give them the more they were going to show the vices of civility, which to me ultimately amounts to financialization because what you want to do is you want to make money without Producing, you want to make money without making an effort. So for these, so that's my story of you know where neoliberalism comes from uh, and why it failed to revive capitalist economies in the after these uh, st- uh, st- uh, the, the 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 onset of the stagflationist period.
0: Yeah, I think that was a very great description in a nutshell of the rise of neoliberalism going back over a hundred years. Now, Radhika, I want to talk more about the 70s and this moment of stagflation, because in the book, you point out that growth rates were higher in the Keynesian era, which is also known as the golden era of capitalism, when there was much more state intervention in the economy, there were capital controls, there were currency controls, and there was much, much more robust growth in this period than in the neoliberal period. But you mentioned that in the 1970s, there was a crisis of the Keynesian system, which was stagflation, simultaneous inflation and stagnation. What do you think the main causes were of the stagflation in the 1970s?
1: Sure. Uh, Now, that's another really large question. So once again, feel free to follow up. But let me begin by talking about why people were surprised uh, at the at the co- co- uh, coincidence, the the simultaneous uh, appearance of inflation as well as stagnation. The reason for that is very simple, because throughout the previous uh, many decades uh, of Keynesian macroeconomic management, it was sort of a rule of thumb that uh, uh, you would have a trade off between uh, uh, growth and uh, 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 so therefore. Uh, uh, between, yeah, you. When you had growth, you would inevitably have a certain amount of inflation, and if you clamp down on inflation by by essentially pursuing restrictive fiscal and monetary policies. Uh, then you would essentially create a certain amount of stagnation the thing about the post second world war period is that on the whole these episodes of 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 need of, of inflation as well as stagnation were quite moderate so you may have uh, a, a certain amount of inflation but it was considered manageable and there was a far greater tolerance for inflation than there was one of the features of neoliberalism by the way is the inst- is the installation of a very high degree of intolerance of inflation and we can come back to that later on but um so 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 the so, so the general idea was that if you if you allow growth to happen you will inevitably get a bit of inflation growth and inflation go together and then if you clamp down on inflation you create disinflation you're going to have a little bit of stagnation but they tended to even out each other a bit but then what happened is you got inflation and stagnation together. This was not supposed to happen, and this is what caused the uh, the, the, the the surprise. Now. I would say that uh, the reasons why this crisis of stagflation occurred were actually many. So uh, maybe, you know, let's cast our mind back to one of the earlier episodes when we talked about how, you know, in critical understandings of capitalism of which Marxism is in the in the forefront, but there are many other compatible critical understandings of capitalism. You can, uh, you know, these critical understandings have produced a complex understanding of capitalism and in that they people agree that there are actually many causes and mechanisms that create crisis in capitalism. And in this book, as in a couple of previous works, what I've tried to do is I've tried to systematize the causes of crisis which occur either because of the way in which the relations among capitalists are organized, namely through competition, or they occur because of the exploitative relation between capital and labor, uh, or capital and all forms of producers, whether they are actually wage labor or sometimes even independent producers. But so these mechanisms, two mechanisms, one vertical, one horizontal, create crisis in practically every realm involving capitalist production. Every given capital, so there are many possible sources of crisis. What's more, any individual crisis will likely have a complex combination of many crisis mechanisms working at the same time. So that's the crisis of the 1970s was no different. The crisis of the 1970s, uh, according to the explanation that I favour, uh, which uh, is uh, uh, you know it basically argues that um, essentially we had a crisis of the 1970s because. Uh, Uh, the expansion of productive power after the Second World War reached the limit of existing demand. Now, both points are important. So on the one hand, of course, the golden age was a very expansive phase of of growth where producers uh, uh, in all the three main centers of capitalist production, of course, expanded their productive capacity. Um, But at the same time, this remained uh, in an underlying fashion a, capitalist economy. And that meant that ultimately a capitalist economy does not allow demand to expand as fast as production. So ultimately the limit of demand is reached. So definitely paucity of demand was one major cause of crisis. Number two, was of course declining profits the profitability uh, as people number, numerous people who have do statistics much better than me have shown profitability of western corporations was continuously declining through this period and with that of course went also both the declining profits as well as uh, uh bad demand conditions also tended to bring down the rate of investment there are other uh, issues as well so there is of course um the whole issue which has been made uh, uh, prominent by the writings of robert gordon who is an american economist and he argues that essentially the innovations that powered growth were more or less kind of exhausted by the around 19 by the early 1970s. so thereafter it's not that innovations have stopped but they have not been quite as Great as you know, as uh, uh, and as as conducive to growth as in the past. So there has been also a slowdown of technological innovation. Uh, Furthermore, of course, uh, you know people would say, well, if demand was saturated and there was not enough demand, where did the inflation come from? Well, this is another fundamental misunderstanding, and it arises from the way in which capitalist economies, in particular, manage inflation or let's say conduct monetary policy what do i mean by that well in a capitalist economy essentially you know people say that inflation is uh, uh, um, too much money chasing too few goods and so typically what the capitalist uh, monetary policy maker does is he says there's too much money and he says we are going to essentially reduce the amount of money available to people. So that includes not just restricting money supply, but it also includes essentially creating such a level of unemployment, such a level of restrictive monetary policy, so high interest rates and so on, so as to induce a recession. And so instead of actually tackling the demand problem, you actually create a recession, which then essentially reduces demand, because if so enough people are unemployed, if enough people are not getting enough wages, then of course demand is going to fall. And so they essentially impose a a, a recession or contraction on the economy in order to deal with inflation. Uh, The economist, the American economist, Robert Solow, called this practice, uh, said that this practice was equivalent to, to, to burning a house to roast a pig. I mean, you'll get a roasted pig at the end of it, but you've burned down your whole house. All you had to do was turn on your oven. The problem is the capitalist economies cannot turn on the oven because the equivalent of that would be to actually tackle the other side of the of the problem, which is to say, okay, why is too much money chasing too few goods? Why are there too few goods? Why should not we uh, encourage either? You know regulate so that capital, private capitalists enough produce enough goods or if private capitalists won't do that the state can step in and supply the goods whether it is food or housing or transportation or whatever it is that is increasing in price So, but of course to start doing that would be to challenge the very fundamentals of a capitalist economy which is that the private sector just by acting on its own devices will provide all of us with what we need. They don't aim to provide us what we need. But inadvertently, uh, this is the capitalist view, inadvertently, they will provide you with what we need. And that's the holy grail of capitalism. You cannot disturb it, etc. So anyway, this way of dealing with inflation eventually meant that Paul Volcker induced a massive recession, both on, you know, when he increased interest rates in order to tackle inflation in the United States, so in that sense, money and monetary policy was a problem. But it was also the case that the inflation was in fact not necessarily coming from, uh, you know, uh, f- uh, was the causes of inflation were not confined to the first world countries. Uh, part of the inflation was also coming from the fact that third world countries were increasingly in a position to demand better prices for their products because they had been through a couple of decades of development and that in itself should not have been a bad thing because at the end of the day, you know, what is the purpose of development? It is to make wages higher, because that's what you want. You know, this idea that you get development by reducing wages is bonkers. You, you want to have, you know, the, whole, the whole purpose of development is to increase wages. Um, and similarly, it is also to increase the prices that can be earned by small producers, whether they are peasants in the third world or, 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 or are small, small business people elsewhere, there or elsewhere. So there is also that, that the, 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 there, was a, there is this whole point that essentially the imperial power of the first world countries to compel third world countries to sell the products of their labor cheaply on world markets was declining. And that should have been also taken into account, but they they did not. So in all of these ways, um, it was a complex crisis a uh, crisis of profitability crisis of demand crisis of the of imperialism crisis of essentially you know uh, 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 management of money etc cetera, etc cetera. so in all of these ways there was a crisis the instead of tackling the complex crisis in a complex way there was essentially a one size fits all policy neoliberalism what does neoliberalism say you must reduce government spending you must reduce the power of labor you must reduce state ownership you must reduce uh, welfare uh, uh, social expenditure of all sorts you must uh, 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 restrict uh, you must uh, 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 decrease taxes particularly on the rich because if you decrease taxes on the rich then they are going to invest and create jobs for everybody this is the, these are the fictions. But this sort of one-size-fits-all policy was one one after another adopted in various Western capitals. And in the context of the debt crisis, which was created by Paul Volcker and his interest rate increases, uh, the debt crisis of the third world, which meant the third world countries went to the IMF and the World Bank in order to borrow money because they suddenly needed vast quantities of money in order to continue repaying their debts and retain their credit. Uh, by the way, um, Fidel Castro told them to repudiate their debts. They were odious debts, but they did not have the political will to do so. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, they, uh, uh, the IMF and the World Bank, in the guise of the structural adjustment programs that they Imposed on third world countries in return for lending this much needed money, essentially imposed neoliberalism on third world countries. So neoliberalism was imposed across the board. So, so, so I hope that that answers your question about uh, uh, stagflation. Like, why did we get stagflation? You got stagflation because it was a complex crisis of capitalism, and then of course neoliberalism treated it as though it were a very simple crisis.
0: Yeah, that analysis is so important because you actually provide a systemic analysis of what caused stagflation. It was a product of the actual capitalist system, the way it was organized, and not simply a variety of different factors that were transitory. Because if you listen to the way most economists discuss the stagflation of the 1970s, they typically blame it on two primary factors, the cost push inflation of the oil lockout of OPEC, which caused oil prices to skyrocket. And the dollar and commodities prices tend to be inverted. So as oil prices go up, the dollar tends to go down in value against other major currencies. And then the other factor that especially neoliberals, monetarists like Milton Friedman popularized is they blamed labor, as always. They always blame labor. Their argument was, in the 1970s, labor was too powerful. You mentioned, for instance, the Trilateral Commission which published this report on the crisis of democracy. By the way, it was co-written by Harvard University star Samuel Huntington, you know, who also played a role in the Jimmy Carter administration, which you could say actually ushered in neoliberalism even before Reagan. And that, and you know, it was actually Carter who 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 appointed Paul Volcker, another neoliberal acolyte, as the chair of the Federal Reserve. So, I mean, you can see the early foundations of neoliberalism being laid here. But anyway, the point is that. In the 1975 report on the crisis of democracy, Samuel Huntington and others, they also claim that labor is too powerful. Labor unions were too powerful. You mentioned the protests and such going on. And of course, the response of the monitors like Milton Friedman is to say that because labor was too powerful and wages were too high, you had demand pull inflation, too much money chasing too few goods. And therefore, the way of dealing with inflation is destroying the power of labor reducing their wages, breaking the back of unions. And this is exactly what happened in the 1980s under Reagan, right? So that, that is the simplistic analysis, but you're actually pointing out that essentially capitalism, the progressive role that capitalism played historically was was decades before. Capitalism was already at its sell-by date in the 1970s, in the monopoly era, and it was, the stages were set For more and more socialization of capital, which we saw even in some parts of Western Europe. I mean, not to exaggerate, but there definitely were a lot of socialist policies. I mean, you mentioned in Britain, one of the the greatest policies Britain ever created, which is the National Health Service and how that that was like the peak. That was one of the greatest victories of the working class in Britain. And ever since then, they've been the ruling class in Britain has been just whittling away, whittling away at the, the NHS. So anyway, the point is, I mean, I think you're absolutely right about that. I want to talk about another significant factor that you discuss in detail in this book, which is the end of Bretton Woods 1. So in 1971, U.S. President Richard Nixon ended the convertibility of the dollar into gold. This goes back to the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, which set a rate of $35 per ounce of gold, making the dollar as good as gold. That ends, Bretton Woods 1 ends in 1971. But that is only part of the story. You point out in this chapter that in 1974, Richard Nixon also lifted capital controls, which had been imposed in the late 1960s in order to deal with, deal with the increasing difficulties that the dollar faced. And in addition to that, you also had the OPEC oil lockout in which oil prices skyrocketed up to four times their previous value. And in order to try to stabilize the dollar in this very unstable geopolitical climate, you mentioned that Henry Kissinger had this Machiavellian diplomatic uh, coup where he persuaded OPEC oil producers, in particular Saudi Arabia, to deposit their oil surpluses as dollar deposits in U.S. and other Western financial institutions, and at the same time lifted capital controls in order to facilitate this. What this helped lead to the creation of is what you and Michael Hudson have referred to as the world dollar creditocracy and you point out that it ushered in a new era of explosive growth in dollar-denominated financial transactions and given their sheer volume, downward pressures on the dollar which had been depreciating because of all the inflation Downward pressures on the dollar were now counteracted by expanding financial demand for the dollar. And this meant that dollar-denominated international capital flows would expand in leaps and bounds to ever greater orders of magnitude, reaching a peak when? In 2008. So you point out it wasn't just the toxic mortgage-backed securities and other toxic securities that set the stage for the 2008 crash. You point out that the, the seeds of the 2008 crash were actually laid in the 1970s when the Nixon administration lifted capital controls in order to try to strengthen the dollar by increasing demand. But all it did was set the stage for increasing financialization and this big bubble that would eventually explode 50 years later. I mean, I've, I've kind of explained your point already, but maybe you can expand more.
1: So, so Ben, those are really good questions. And I, 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 I have, I'd love to uh, say a little bit more about all those things in addition to what I've said in my book. But let me also let me just say something about what you started out with, because, you know, it's really there's a huge truth buried in the debate that you mentioned earlier which is what most economists blame inflation on and you rightly pointed out they will either blame it on what they call cost push inflation so it's like primary commodity prices are too high, or they will blame it on wage push inflation, so wages are too high. But if you think about it, if, that is, if these are the things that cause inflation and capitalism, then it tells you that capitalism is kind of finished, because remember, what's the point of having any kind of economy if it does not allow people to live better, which means people who have historically been poor? If it does not allow for the improvement in the conditions of working people in the capitalist countries and of working people in third world countries. So, you know, when the prices of, I don't know, coffee or wheat or generally food or whatever, or for that matter, oil go up, what that tells you is that the people, the workers of these countries or these countries themselves are uh, uh, able to demand a higher price for these products. And in fact, that should happen. If in order to maintain capitalism, you have to clamp down on wages and push them down further. You have to clamp down on uh, uh, primary commodity prices and push them down further. What kind of a system is that? Essentially, it's a system that relies on the poverty of a lot of people. So that's that's the thing you have to remember. If that's the only way you have of dealing in, with inflation, in reality, you should be able to deal with inflation by expanding production without affecting the advance uh, in the the living standards of of workers or primary commodity producers. But this is not the option that we have taken. And I think many people today, people who are working, people who are striking in such large numbers today will find this uh, very interesting and important. So, okay, let's, let's turn to the end of Bretton Woods 1 in 1971 and what this has to do with the repeated financial crises of the time. Uh, of of the time since. Uh, It's really important to remember that actually in the period of, uh, between the end of the Second World War and the 1970s, this was, you know, this period of the Keynesian welfare states in first world countries and what I call the the period when socialistic measures enabled the golden age of growth uh, uh, for these countries. In this period, one of the key uh policies uh, uh, one of the key institutional features of this period was the widespread adoption of capital controls which meant that capital while capital could flow across borders governments monitored these flows and they did not permit most flows of capital across borders. Capital markets were national. Uh, This uh, situation was uh, uh, nicknamed or was labeled financial repression by those people who thought that this was a bad thing. But for the world as a whole, this was a great thing because it allowed um, governments to manage economies with a view to full employment, to productive dynamism, etc., uh, and also to things like rising wages, to broad-based prosperity, etc., without having to worry about the effect of that on the exchange rate, etc. They allowed people to make uh, to manage the internal economy without. Uh, worrying about the effects of this on the external economy and so on which meant that that essentially governments had a lot of policy autonomy so this era of financial repression uh, enabled vast growth and it also was an era in which thanks to the in, to the restriction on capital flowing unrestricted across borders it was also an era of great financial stability. There were hardly any financial crises, currency crises, banking crises of the sort that we have become so used to in the last many decades. So now what I do in this book, as well as in my previous book, Geopolitical Economy, and in various other writings, including the one you mentioned that I wrote with Michael Hudson called Beyond the Dollar Creditocracy, in a whole bunch of these writings, what I've tried to do is I've tried to show that um, the financialization that we have witnessed in the neoliberal era, which is essentially a great expansion of financial activity, uh, essentially increasing indebtedness on the one hand and increasing speculation in asset markets, which seem to go up no matter how badly productive economies are doing, this type of economy Uh, is actually deeply connected with another aspect of the post-war period and our current situation, which we have not yet mentioned, and that is the role of the dollar as the world's money. So very briefly, uh, I think we've mentioned aspects of this in the past, but let me give you a capsule version of the story. So essentially, uh, in the early 20th century, American policymakers begin to nurse the ambition of having Uh, the US dollar replace the pound sterling as the world's money. They can see that the role of sterling is weakening and they think, oh, well, if they can do it, so can we, you know, we are going to make the dollar the world's money. Unfortunately, there were many things wrong with this vision. Number one, you know the fact of the matter is that sterling was an imperial currency the uk was able to make make and keep sterling the world's currency because the uk had access to vast uh, uh, reserves of uh, uh, vast surpluses from its empire which it was able to export to other countries, such as the United States itself by the way, which throughout the 19th century and the early 20th century was a giant sinkhole for capital, which this these capital imports in the, into the United States accounted for its great industrialization, as also the industrialization of many other countries in Europe, in North America, uh, which is say US, Canada, and then of course the Antipodes and South Africa and so on. So these were the places where the capital went and the capital was extracted from places like British India and Africa and the Caribbean and so on. So this type of uh, system worked because Britain was an imperial country. The United States is not an imperial country. The United States had, you know, especially given that after the Second World War, the United States was competing with the rest of the world in order to maintain the size both absolute and relative of the US economy, it had no capital to spare. It wanted, uh, it it certainly uh, wished that all the capital it had would be reinvested in American, uh, in the American economy in order to keep up its relative and absolute size. So there were no capital exports. You know, people often talk about the Marshall Marshall, um, Plan. Marshall Plan funds were puny compared both to what Europe needed and what uh, of course, the you know what had gone as capital exports in the past. So, so this is Marshall Fund is no counter argument. Um, sorry, Marshall um, Plan is no counter argument. So, essentially, then the United States could only provide the world with liquidity, they essentially make dollars available for the world to use by running deficits. I should also say I've mentioned before that the United States, you know, the pe- world did not want the U.S. dollar to be the world's money. The U.S., the United States gave the world no choice but to accept it by essentially rejecting the plans that were brought forward at Bretton Woods to have a very different system, which hopefully we'll talk about another time. But Keynes proposed this international clearing union and bank or the US rejected that, imposed the dollar on the world and then proceeded to provide the world with liquidity, that is to say with dollars, not by exporting capital, which would have been at least more stable, but by running deficits, essentially writing IOUs and, and issuing dollars to the rest of the world in payment for what the United States was receiving from them, whether it was goods, but also it was um, essentially the money that it spent or uh, yeah, uh, in its military activities abroad. So these deficits as these deficits grew uh, 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 people began to see a problem and the famous belgian economist robert triffin pointed out that look this is not a sustainable situation because the fact of the matter is that you are providing uh, liquidity by running deficits but the bigger your deficits are the more liquidity you provide the less the rest of the world wants your dollars and sure enough between 1960 and uh, between roughly 1958 and 1971 the european countries Uh, uh, refused to take dollars for their exports because they ran export surpluses with the United States. They refused to take these exports, uh, uh, the the dollar. And they said, no, give us gold instead. You've promised to exchange the dollar for gold um, at $35 an ounce. We'll take it. We'll take gold. So essentially gold drained out of the United States in this period. In fact, it was mostly gone by 1961. So it didn't take that long. And thereafter, the United States tried to engage in a number of stopgap measures to try to keep the convertibility of the gold going, but eventually it exhausted all possible attempts. And by 1971, it had to say, sorry, folks, we can't exchange the dollar for gold anymore. Thereafter, lots of people thought that the dollar's world role would be finished and gone. But the United States since then has essentially landed on an extremely volatile, dangerous, and also ultimately unsustainable way of keeping the dollar as the world's money, which is what you were saying, expand financial activity. Because the downward pressure on the dollar comes from the fact that the U.S. is running trade deficits and current account deficits. But if you expand financial um, transactions, then the world, you essentially give not so much the world, but at least the rich people and institutions of the world, a reason to hold dollars. Because what you are saying is that you can, you know, We may not have much to export to you, but if you invest, if you hold dollars and invest them in our financial system, then you will make money through financial transactions, either by lending or through speculation. So essentially, the United States opens a kind of vast casino, uh, a sort of a casino come uh, loan shark business, essentially. And that's the way in which the United States, by essentially counteracting the effect of the Triffin dilemma by expanding world demand for dollars. In the, form of, uh, in the form of financial activity, the U.S. has counteracted uh, the Triffin Dilemma. So this has meant ever-expanding financial activity. So beginning in the 1970s, financial activity has expanded. There's a graph in the book that you can see. But financial activity has expanded constantly. Uh, uh you know and and each expansion has ended badly creating a crisis for the world so the initial expansion which basically involved um, accepting uh, uh, you know as you know in the, uh, accept, accepting petrodollars and then uh, uh, lending these petrodollars to the third world essentially uh, 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 creating a vast uh, expansion of bank lending to third world and some even communist governments at the time uh the, all of this lending took place in a, a context where the interest rates were very low and even negative and this was this uh, could take place because you know as as you uh, were uh, recalling uh when opec increased oil prices in 1973 and again in 1978 what happened was that the um uh, 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 these uh, well, uh, 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 henry kissinger uh, essentially, persuaded them to uh, not to allow uh, the oil surpluses to go towards, say, uh, a European or Japanese plan to recycle oil surpluses by uh, allowing the oil surplus countries to lend money to these countries so that they could be they could buy the higher priced oil, but rather said to them deposit them in U.S. and generally other Western financial institutions that were increasingly becoming part of this big financial U.S. dollar-denominated financial system, which began expanding at this point. So these banks suddenly began getting vast quantities of deposits. Well, if you're a bank, you may think that, you know, having vast quantities of deposit is a great thing, but you've got a big worry. You have to pay interest on these deposits. How are you going to pay interest on these deposits? You're going to have to lend them lend them out, find people who are, who can borrow this money, make enough out of this borrowing so as to pay you back. That would be the ideal situation. But anyway, they essentially ended up lending to governments on the ground that governments never go bankrupt and uh, essentially lent a lot of money to these governments. And then when Paul Volcker raised interest rates in the 1980s, money that was borrowed at near zero or sometimes even negative real interest rates was suddenly uh, 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 that these debts were valued at vastly more because real interest rates went up massively. And uh, most of these borrowers essentially couldn't pay. And you got the big third world debt crisis. So that's how the first big expansion ended. Then you got a vast inflation in the U.S. stock market, which ended with the 1987 U.S. stock market crash. Then you got the uh, various, uh, you know, money started flowing out of the United States looking for opportunities for profit making elsewhere. So you got currency and banking crises in Mexico, the so-called tequila crisis and in Russia and even in places like Sweden. And in the early 90s in Britain, in other advanced industrial countries, you began to get these crises. Then the culmination of all that was the big giant East Asian financial crisis. After that, you got the dot-com bubble because money then flowed into the US stock market, particularly in the the tech stocks. That came crashing in uh, 2000. Then you got the buildup of the massive housing and credit bubbles that burst in 2008. And of course, now we are sitting on post-2008 on a giant everything bubble. So anyway, that's the that's the general story. But the, what I also point out is that there were two key moves that were made by the United States to create the condition for this. The first move was that the United States lifted capital controls in order that all these petrodollars could start being recycled uh, in the 1970s via US and affiliated uh, banks, uh, uh, which accepted uh, these petrodollars as deposits and started lending so freely around the world. So lifting of capital controls was the first thing. And the second thing was, The Volcker Shock. So lifting of capital controls essentially certainly opened the way for money to flow into the US uh, dollar-denominated financial system. And in the 1990s, of course, the US tried to persuade a whole lot of other countries to lift capital controls as well. And they, of course, that meant that they became vulnerable to these crises as well. And the second thing was uh, was the Volcker Shock. Because what happened along with the Volcker Shock is that a very fundamental principle of banking and of generally credit relations, of debt and credit relations, which is that debtor and creditor are co-responsible for a bad loan. I mean, if things go well, nobody worries about it. Money is borrowed, money is repaid, everybody's happy. The borrower made a lot of money, out of the lot of money he or she made, it was paid back everything is good but when loans go bad people say you know whose fault is that and generally speaking it has been held that or, uh, that it borrower and, and and lender are both they have a problem if you lend the money uh, uh, without due scrutiny it was your problem too it wasn't just the borrower's problem well this principle of creditor risk rest- co-responsibility for bad debts was completely thrown out of the window. And since then, the world has been mm-hmm. running on the basis of essentially having, of what we, what Michael and I call a creditocracy. That is to say, a, a, a world of uh, financial relations, of debt and credit relations, in which creditor is king and the borrower is nothing. But that is exactly uh, the sort of recipe for disaster and a recipe for productive uh, strangulation, the strangulation of the productive economy. Because in any decent economy, you should have uh, essentially a situation in which the borrower, namely the entrepreneur who borrows money in order to invest it, should have a certain position. and and, 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 And this is completely negated. And this is part of the fundamental problem with the kind of economy that neoliberalism with on which of course the dollar with which the dollar system is intimately connected is linked.
0: Yeah Radhika, I think this episode historically is very important to understand how we got to the moment we are today and of course with the 2008 financial crash and all of the ensuing consequences it's it's important to go back to the 1970s to see the foundations that were laid for that crisis and you make an interesting point in this book The narrative that we've often heard about the third world debt crisis is that with the recycling of all of the petrodollars from OPEC producers, especially Saudi Arabia, they are depositing their oil profits in dollar deposits in U.S. commercial banks and also buying U.S. treasury bonds. And then with all of that, the excess deposits in the commercial banks in the U.S., they begin uh, lending at very low interest rates to countries in the global south, largely And the argument that we've often heard is that this essentially fueled a lot of corruption, right? That, you know, it's part of this myth that corruption is somehow more endemic in the global South than it is in the global North when, I mean, obviously there is corruption in the global South, but it also very much exists in the global North. Look at insider trading in the U.S. Congress. I mean, it's absolutely rampant. But anyway, the point is, the, the blame is put on the shoulders of people in the third world saying that they're simply corrupt. They're hopelessly corrupt. But in, in fact, you point out in the book that when in, in the 1970s, when inflation was high in the United States and there was all this borrowing happening, all this lending happening, because the interest rates, in, in many cases, the real interest rates were effectively negative or very low because the inflation was higher than the actual interest rates this actually did help to fund a lot of industrialization efforts in the global south you point out in the book that the global south that is the developing world's share of world manufacturing increased from 7.6% in 1970 to 10.2% a decade later in 1980 whereas at the same time the the developing world the global north's share of global manufacturing declined in the same period from 70, 71.1% to 63.2%. And this was, for a lot of countries, You know, in, in my case, being more familiar with Latin America, with countries like Brazil and Mexico and Argentina, this was a major boom for industrial uh, development in these countries. There were a lot of good industrial jobs. And the neoliberal era not only financialized the US economy, it also financialized many of these third world countries, economies that were trapped in debt, like Brazil, like Mexico. And still today, I mean, a lot of these countries are dealing with essentially the same problem as then with this debt they simply can't pay off. And now with rising interest rates again, there are a lot of historical parallels. But you pointed out in the book, Radhika, a fact that is not that well known. The idea of US banks being too big to fail did not begin in 2009 with the bailouts of the banks. You point out that in the 1980s, as the U.S. Federal Reserve under chair Paul Volcker is massively raising interest rates, and that means that it's extremely difficult for countries that have borrowed that money to pay it off, especially in the global south. They can't print dollars. Their currency is devalued against the dollar because of the rising interest rates. So it becomes harder and harder to service the debts. Well, what that also means is because each loan has two sides of the balance sheet. It's an asset for the for the bank, and it's a liability for the people who is borrowing the money, right? So the bank's assets also decrease in value, which is something that we're seeing today with the rise in interest rates. So many of these banks in the 1980s with rising interest rates became insolvent. And in response, there were basically two policies you mentioned to save the, the insolvent banks. One, of course, the IMF and the World Bank came in and imposed the neoliberal structural adjustment policies and austerity on the debtors in in the global South. But you point out that also, essentially, this was the beginning of too big to fail, that banks that were, were basically insolvent like continental Illinois were essentially nationalized temporarily and bailed out by the US government. So this, I mean, is another example of one of these historical parallels that is so similar to what we're seeing today, where the, with these constant crises, you mentioned so many of them, these constant crises in which the lifting of capital controls and neoliberal policies and deregulation creates a big bubble and that bubble explodes. We see that again and again and again in the past 50 years. And you also point out that in response to this 80s crisis, banks in the US were afraid of lending directly. So instead, they began to securitize debt. And this leads to the creation of things like mortgage-backed securities and the toxic securities bubble that of course blew up in 2008. So, I mean, again, we see it an example of how these policies in in the 1970s, the, the lifting of capital controls in 1974, and eventually the implementation of neoliberalism, all of this set the stage For the problems we've been dealing with ever since the 1970s. And I think it really goes a long way to explaining why we're in the situation we're in now, where just this year, three of the four biggest banks that have collapsed in US history have collapsed just this year alone. So, I mean, a lot of people would say, why haven't they learned? But of course, they have learned. The thing is, the ruling class is in crisis because they understand that in this moment, the only solution out of the crisis is a return to more socialistic measures, which means that the capitalist class is going to lose its profit. So that's why they don't learn, because it's in their economic interest to not learn. I'm wondering if you have thoughts there to wrap up. Sure.
1: Again, lots of really interesting questions. So let me just begin anywhere. But I do want to end with the learning part. Um, so, OK, so let me first of all say that, you know, because they essentially are associated with the rejection of the idea of a creditor and lender co-responsibility for any debt that has gone bad what we have is a tradition that we have established of always blaming the debtor. So that's why, you know, coming out, you know, as a result of the third world debt crisis, the stories began to float, you know, the mainstream media, as well as by the way, mainstream scholarship, they're all the same. They all began to peddle the idea that the debt crisis was a result of the fact that there were, there was massive corruption in third world countries. But as you rightly pointed out, there is massive corruption pretty well in all the major capitalist economies that we can see. Uh, what happens in third world countries is you get a lot more retail corruption, you know, small, petty corruption. But in every major capitalist country, third world as well as first world, what you invariably have is grand corruption, grand last- and massive corruption. So millions and billions of dollars changing hands through insider trading, uh, through, uh, uh, you know, using uh through through through, through uh, taking advantage of your uh, official position so you know how many presidents prime ministers ministers etc go on after the end of their term in office to take very lucrative positions in uh, uh, big corporations and so on this is a form of corruption because it takes it's not Quite quid pro quo in the sense that, you know, you give me this and I give you that. But it is as good as that because that's the expectation. So there is corruption everywhere uh, in the capitalist world in particular. Socialist countries we can talk about separately where there may be corruption, but it signifies something very different. Uh, But anyway, so there is, of course, corruption. But uh, this is really it had less to do. The fact of the matter is that in the 1970s, first world banks were desperate to lend. They were touting their loans. There's a wonderfully funny book called In Banks We Trust by Penny Lerno which was talking about how lending within the first world, well, lending generally in the 1970s took, you know, essentially took the form of boozy lunches in which people would write loan contracts on table napkins. You know, that's the kind of, uh, 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 you know, carelessness with which lending was done, because quite frankly, you had to lend to somebody who could vaguely promise you to return, you know, some sort of return, because otherwise you had no means of paying interest on all these deposits that you had taken. So the real issue is, you know, people say, oh, these poor third world countries need our lending. No, you need to lend your money to them in the first place. Why? Because since the 1970s, one of the things that I forgot to mention earlier, Uh, well, I did mention earlier, neoliberalism never resolved the problem of growth and dynamism. Throughout the neoliberal period, you have had lower and ever lower rates of growth and ever lower rates of investment. In this context, if you want to lend, then you can't lend to first world businesses. So you are going to have to find other uh, people to lend with. And the prime borrowers have been third world governments, third world corporations, and also, of course, Household debt and uh, and so on. So anyway, the point is that you always blame the debtor, but in reality, the uh, if the creditor is also uh, has been desperate to lend. And you have had the United States and its dollar system and its neoliberalism and financialization have created a world of loan doubts. How many unemployed friends do you do? We all have who have been sent. Uh, uh applications for credit cards please apply and we will give you a credit card so this is the kind of thing where this is where we we've, we've come to okay so that's the first point you uh, also pointed out that um the, the the too big to fail uh, issue yes absolutely the 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 first time that the expression too big to fail was used was in relation to continental illinois continental illinois was one of the banks that was endangered by the third world debt crisis but as i said the imf and the world bank acting as bailiffs for the dollar denominated uh, financial system essentially uh, uh, created a situation in which the creditors who were part of the problem would be bailed out and the burden of return, of repaying the debt would be placed on third world governments who, of course, uh, essentially had to then create the conditions in which third world producers were working harder and harder to export more and more. And, of course, all third world countries produce like products. So all of them are exporting more or less the same things together, whether it's coffee or cotton or cocoa or silk or what have you. And naturally, they are flooding the markets with this. The prices are falling, so they have to work harder and harder to make the same amount of money. I mean, it was tragic what what happened to third world countries. But all of this was very breezily put down to corruption. Anyway, continental Illinois got bailed out. Uh, And this was the first time too big to fail was used. You mentioned something else, something about learning. You know, back in the when Paul Volcker raised interest rates, uh, you didn't actually have a situation in which banks would suddenly uh, not have liquidity. Uh, Because they, you see right now, the the problem with SVB and other such banks occurred because their assets, which they are now required to keep thanks to post-2008 legislation, which has which was aimed at increasing the resilience of the banking system they are required to keep x amount of treasuries uh, you know essentially us government debt as part of their assets uh, and essentially they they uh, uh, they have invested in these and they invested in these long dated treasuries assuming that they interest rates would remain low and therefore these bonds would retain their value. But then as inflation returned, and we'll talk later about why inflation has returned this time, but as inflation returned and the Federal Reserve did the only thing that it permits itself to do, which is start jacking up interest rates, these uh, securities became useless. And as a consequence, the bank went bust. But back in the 1980s, banks primarily, well, banks, first of all, did not go bust because Apart from Continental Illinois, they were all, you know, they, they they were all not. They didn't have to be bailed out by governments because, essentially, the imposition of the principle of debt of responsibility ensured that third world governments continued to pay back their loans. And in the end, they have ended up paying vastly, many times the money they borrowed, which they had borrowed in a low interest rate environment, and they're now repaying in a very high interest rate environment. So the banks didn't go bust. But you're absolutely right about securitization. So, you know, we have this expression in English, once bitten, twice shy. So the banks realized that if they went in the future, having, you know, been rattled, if not you know, destroyed by the experience of the third world debt crisis in which, yes, if the IMF, the World Bank, the US and other first world governments had not acted in order to impose the principle of debtor responsibility, these banks would have gone bust. But they didn't go bust. They were saved, but they said, "Okay, we got saved, but now we'll not get back into that situation again. So what did they do? They essentially change the lending practices so the old lending practice was the bank would lend you money and therefore the loan would remain on the bank's books that you have lent you know ex uh, country so much money and this will be paid back over time and so on and so forth and if it didn't wasn't paid back over time the bank was immediately in trouble. So now in order to avoid that, you know, if it was big enough, you know, the old expression that if you owe a bank a hundred bucks and you can't pay, you are in trouble. But if you owe a bank a million dollars, or maybe these days a billion dollars and you can't pay, the bank is in trouble. So the banks knew that. So they said, okay, we are now no longer lending uh, with loans that sit on our books. What we are going to do is we're going to float bonds so essentially what they do for every lender is they securitize the loan so imagine a lender wants to borrow a $1000 so you say okay we are going to float you know uh, 100 bonds of $10 each and we'll you know we will buy a few of them but we will also offer it to the rest of the public and then they will buy you know i you know we, we hope that they will buy them so that's how a uh, and of course once you Put out that loan, you may ha- have a certain rate of interest tied to it, but the value of the bond may go up and down. If people think you are a great prospect, they will buy the bond for uh, much more than uh, you are offering them for. And that will bring down the interest rate, you effective interest rate you have to pay. And if they don't like it, they may increase the interest rate you have to pay, but whatever. The point about securitization is that you don't have to sit on a loan. You don't have to pers- keep a loan until maturity. If you feel that this lender to whom you have lent through through these means through bonds is not looking very good tomorrow, you can sell the bond. At least that's the idea. The problem is that, uh, so this idea is that, you know, you are going to reduce the risk to which you are exposed. But first of all, the moment any problem actually appears with any lender, everybody knows about it. In most cases, people know about it. So in fact, at that point, Everybody's trying to sell their securities relating to that borrower in that case, suddenly the market freezes up and you actually can't sell it to anybody without incurring a big loss, without taking much less for your bond than you have been willing to pay. So this idea that somehow bonds are safer is itself problematic, except in very, very limited circumstances where the market for that bond is still liquid. You know something about this problem that other people don't, etc. That's why insider information is so important. But anyway, so that's how they started securitizing lending. And this is the fundamental fiction that lies underneath uh, the securitization process, the idea that somehow by securitization, you are reducing the risk. This is a false idea. And that is why we got those big a uh, 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 bond crises that we began to get with the mortgage-backed securities and and, and so on uh, in with the 2008 financial crisis because it is you were actually not spreading risk at all and nor were you diluting risk for any given lender either. The fact of the matter is at the end of the day it is not particular securities that are liquid or not. It is markets that are liquid or not. And if a certain uh, you know market for a certain kind of bond. Uh, 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 if everybody knows that this is, bond is in, in problem, then suddenly the markets are going to freeze up and there'll be nobody who wants to buy the bond that you are so desperate to sell.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. I mean, uh, the way that these things are so flippantly discussed by, you know, neoliberal ideologues as if making securitizing something inherently makes it more stable. I mean, it, it's the complete inverse of reality. And the 2008 crash is staring everyone it, the reality is staring everyone in the face. And it's increasingly difficult to, to ignore that. As today we see similar crises, they're not exactly the same, but as we see again, three of the four biggest banks in US history that have collapsed have collapsed, or at least that were allowed to collapse, have collapsed just in the past few months. So in the next part our of our discussion of chapter four of Radhika's book, which is neoliberalism and its financializations. We're going to be talking about the situation today, the parallels to the stagflation of the 1970s, and the long downturn. Uh, Radhika discusses the long downturn in her book, which is, you know, the golden era of capitalism was the Keynesian era. And we've discussed today how growth rates were actually quite stagnant in the neoliberal era. And especially since, you know, with the 2008 crash, there has been stagnation economically around much of the world. And uh, you know, we're still living with this long downturn that we've been in since the rise of neoliberalism. So I want to remind everyone that you can follow along in the series and read Radhika's book for free. You can download it and I'll put the link in the description below. And it was made available for free as a PDF, thanks to the support from the Knowledge Unlatched Foundation. Um, Radhika, is there anything else that you'd like to plug before we conclude here?
1: Yeah, actually, that's, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have that opportunity because I just realized that I missed an important thing in the last thing I just said, which is you asked a very important question about learning. And that is very central to my book because, you know, I argue in my book that uh, uh, most economists tend to talk about, the, about capitalist economies uh, in the kind of in the simple present tense, as though all its dynamics are cyclical. Whereas in my book, I give a historical account of that dynamic because I feel that the dynamics cannot be cyclical because capitalism continuously runs into crisis and as it runs into crisis capitalist states have had to continuously manage these crises obviously the role of some states like the u.s state which is quite very powerful and runs this international creditocracy or casino as i like to call it casino plus loan shark business uh uh, the, the, the the role of that state is of course much greater but The whole point of a historical um, account is to account for learning. So, for example, um, you know, uh, after spending the 1980s and 1990s, urging all ca- governments to uh, lift capital controls, the very heavy incidents uh, the uh, the IMF and the World Bank spent the 1980s and 90s asking everybody to lift capital controls. But the heavy cost of financial crisis after that did have an effect on the World Bank and the IMF, particularly because the record of their own interventions in these crises led many countries to conclude that these were essentially outfits that worked in the interests of first world countries. So this was a correct conclusion and they, imf and the world bank could see that many third world governments were withdrawing from it its loan portfolios were shrinking so they did in fact uh, uh, end up admitting that yes a certain amount of capital account management would be allowed so that's an instance of learning and in the present case in the case of the securitization etc that we were talking about and in the generally in the case of the banking sector of the united states you can say that you know one of the things that happened at the end of the 2008 financial crisis when it occurred People did, you know, no matter how much Alan Greenspan tried to dissimulate before various uh, 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 agencies, including Senate banking committees and so on. Oh, I, I was so surprised. I thought markets worked really well. I was wrong, etc. But in reality, at the end of the day, there was a certain amount of regulation. And one very big piece of regulation was the Dodd-Frank. Bill And what the Dodd-Frank bill tried to do is it tried to make the banking system more resilient. Uh, And and it did that by saying, you know, you must have X amount of high quality debt uh, in your possession as your asset is so that, you know, you should have, uh, uh, yeah, you should have gold bonds, uh, high, uh, high quality corporate bonds or government bonds and so on in order to uh, pass various regular stress tests and essentially to pass muster as a viable bank. So these banks ended up keeping a lot of uh, uh, government bonds in their portfolios. And so the financial system and the financial regulators had learned one thing, which is that the banks should be made more resilient. But now they will have to learn another thing, which is that so-called high-quality assets may not actually be so high quality if circumstances change. In this case, uh, inflation returned to the United States in a big way. Federal Reserve started raising interest rates, and therefore the prices of bonds that were bought in an era of low interest rates started um plummeting and therefore essentially making the yields much higher. And uh, and this plummeting in the value of bonds is what ended up putting these uh, banks, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks that collapsed recently. And, and, and by the way, another learning factor, the United States government could not possibly have bailed them out because the fact of the matter is that the American public knows, the U.S. public knows that, Uh, uh, The last time it's the banks that got bailed out. So any government that does it again is going to face an enormous amount of popular disaffection, possibly even very severe popular unrest. They have already had, uh, you know, uh, the the, the feeling that the working class is being shafted has already produced phenomena such as Trump. Uh, in the past, of course, we had Occupy Wall Street. Of course, these are politically very different ones. But the fact of what I'm trying to say is that the fear of popular discontent, popular disaffection, particularly with an election looming, is what essentially ensured that the government could not easily be openly seen to bail out banks as it had done in the past.
0: Yes, very well said. And thanks for adding that note. I think it's, it's an it's important context to add as well. Um, I just, again, I want to invite everyone watching or listening to check out Radhika's book. You can download it for free as a PDF. I will link to it in the description below. And in the next part, we will continue our discussion of her chapter on neoliberalism and, in particular, the economic situation today and the lessons that we can learn from the 1970s. Um, I invite everyone to follow Radhika's work at the um, International Manifesto Group also at the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. And you can follow her on Twitter at Rad Desai. Um, Anything else you'd like to mention before we conclude here?
1: Uh, No, that's great, Ben. Thank you so much for having
0: me. It's always a real pleasure. And I want to thank everyone who watched or listened. Please subscribe. And we'll see you all next time.